Welcome to episode five of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally. It's September and fall might be in the air, but there sure is a spring in my step with this new royalty-free jazz beat I'm playing under my voice. In addition to the drums, we've also picked up a producer, Jason Putney. So big thanks to him. Settle down, guys. Settle down. Big thanks to him for uh, taking on the editing. Uh, As you can see, I went a little crazy with the royalty-free sound downloads, so you'll hear a few of those. Uh, Now, this month, we're going to be digging into America's two-party system. And despite the fact that as many people in this country choose not to identify with either major party, as do Democrat or Republican, and the fact that polls consistently show the majority of Americans support third-party participation in elections, the voices of those who fall outside, either Democrat or Republican, are rarely heard. And so for episode one, I interviewed Trevor Barlow, who came into the race for governor of Vermont in 2018 a little late, but still managed to come in third as a third-party candidate. And during the interview, we dig into what drove him to run and what his philosophies are but also some of the walls he ran into as a third-party candidate trying to get a voice in the debate. Now, I'll be back after the episode with my jazz drummer and closing comments. But until then, Trevor. Trevor Barlow, welcome. Thanks for talking with me tonight. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No, no problem at all. No problem. And I guess I should say uh, happy Shark Week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, after having just spent uh, a couple of days on the Cape a week ago and been evacuated out of the water twice, I was like, wow, that's a new experience. Were you there for the tornado too or, or no? No, I missed the tornado, but we were there. I was there, um, got evacuated twice on Head of the Meadow up until the day before one of the seals got attacked right off the uh-huh. edge there. And uh, yeah, <laughs> really? so it was kind of funny because I, I literally felt like I was living Jaws because I can remember, you know, growing up on Jaws and I'm like, okay, here's everyone running out of the water, yelling and screaming, you know, like a thousand people evacuated in like under 30 seconds. It was like people were walking on water. It uh, was pretty, pretty fascinating. Is that what it was like? Was it was it just total panic? Uh, I mean, I think it was just adrenaline, right? Um, yeah. You know, a few screeches, but at the same time, I got admit, human nature came out. There's like people, you know, pushing other people out of the way and just trying to get to beach. I guess the whole rule of thumb of, you know, don't ever be the, the uh, slowest swimmer in a shark attack. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was, but it was amazing that the lifeguards and the shore patrol were so on top of it. Like they had, you know, had helicopters flying overhead and planes constantly kind of checking the waters. And they came out, whistled, yelled, got people out. And as much as there was, you know, a split second or two of chaos and in like 30 seconds, it was over and everyone's out hanging out for an hour. And it was a great white then, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, yeah. did you did you grow up in Vermont or did you grow up in so I um I so I was born in Massachusetts um lived okay. on the North Shore for first I guess few years of my life and then um my father got transferred to a job up in Vermont and so we we ended up moving up here so I I say that you know by birth from Massachusetts but by upbringing from Vermont so 
Got it. And where in Vermont did you grow up then? So I uh, grew up in a town called Springfield, Vermont, which is right on the Vermont New Hampshire border and Southern Vermont. Yeah. And so I guess like what prompted you to, to run for governor then? Like, were you, were you in sort of any elected office before or had you tried it before? I guess I've, I've always been fascinated by leadership and kind of the Uh human, human condition. And so, you know, I, I came back East and was in New Hampshire for a bit, uh, helping out my in-laws and, uh, and, you know, bought a place in Vermont at the time. And we're, to be honest, my wife and I were trying to figure out if we're staying in New England or if we're head back out West because Colorado's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I came back up to my hometown of Springfield and just noticed that this place that was, you know, one of the wealthiest towns in Vermont and full of innovation and just always had great energy around it was in the kind of in the doldrums uh you know manufacturing had left had gone overseas or been sold out and uh there really there wasn't a lot left there except for infrastructure and there were still you know some good people living there but i don't know something crazy like 25 to 30 percent of the population had left which you know that's significant i don't care what size community you are and so yeah I, i was just hanging out and i was seeing what was going on and I've never been one to sit on the sidelines and just decided that it was time to throw my voice in the ring. And, uh, you know, if it went, looked into it, had some people I was talking to just about things going on. I had been trying to work on some local issues and, and Vermont being a relatively small state, it felt like a, a somewhat attainable goal, I guess, you know, people are like, well, why don't you, you know, be on the select board or run for, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I could do that, but that really doesn't interest me. I'd, I'd love to yeah. be able to make a bigger impact on the state. And I feel like, you know, governor's office is a is a good speaking point. And even if I, you know, didn't get elected, so thinking rationally, right, uh, about the goal, I just wanted to go out and see what kind of impact we could make and how far a voice could carry by just being in the process, as well as being in the process yeah. to your earlier statement as a non-traditional candidate, you know, I wasn't uh, party affiliated. So, And so you mentioned when you grew up in Springfield, obviously it was a much more vibrant place. So what, what, were, what was the main industry there? What was the main economic driver in Springfield when you were growing up? So it was gear manufacturing. The area um, along the Connecticut River and Black River Valley was always called the uh, Precision Valley because the um, just the skill and aptitude at which these gears were produced or just any type of what I would call mechanical equipment um, or mechanical gearing kind of drove the economy. And, you know, the it was a what I call a perverse point of pride was that we were supposedly on the list of the top 10 places to be bombed in a world war, you know, initially made Hitler's list. And just because we provided all the gearing and all kind of the specialized heavy duty manufacturing for, I believe it was a lot of military and precision sighting equipment. Got it. So Hitler had you on the list. Yeah. You get this little town in Vermont where a bunch of engineers and, you know, skilled factory workers making 
having a great lifestyle and, and at the same time, you know, kind of on the international map because of the quality of their work. That's insane. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. So, so, okay. So what, what led to the decline then? Was it, I mean, obviously like between when you were growing up and when you came back, the nature of military spending had changed. Was it that, or was it, you know, the migration of manufacturing overseas or was it a mix of both? I think, you know, and if you had asked me, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you'd say, oh, you know, the jobs went overseas. And then as mm-hmm. I've gotten to know a little more about the community and kind of the true stories behind things, you know, there are a bunch of financial transactions that happened at the time that seemed in the best interest of the industry. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think ended up gutting the industry like it there was a lot of consolidation going on in the market and you know a couple Mm -hmm. companies sold out to larger companies under the assumption that the jobs would be maintained and you know go figure the larger companies did what they thought was um in their best interest and uh ended up Mm -hmm. shipping a lot of it overseas so so yeah so ultimately it's no different than what happened in kind of the rust belt uh economy uh with regards to yeah manufacturing left Got it. And so where did those jobs go then? Do you know? You know, I'm not completely sure from my understanding, some of the equipment uh, that was built over here because it was pretty unique. uh, got sent to Japan at the time. And I think a lot of it got outsourced over there uh, because I think, you know, you're kind of at that point in the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, there was a trajectory um, starting in Southeast Asia with the Japanese economy kind of being more competitive and kind of trying to, you know, one up the precision of uh, similar products in America. So, yeah. uh, Yeah. So I think that's it. Yeah. I'm sure that could be an awesome PhD thesis for someone to (laughs) come in and find find the jobs. Exactly. You know, do an analysis on the specifics. But, you know, I think it's, like anything, it, it, from a human perspective, it's easy to point to one thing and assess blame and say, "Hey, that's that's what it was." But you know, I think it was ultimately more complicated than that. So, and so, what was your platform then, or what were some of the main tenets that you're running on? Uh, so, one of the things I noticed when I came back to the town is that um, they had been sold a bill of goods on a few things. I think that kind of sent the town on the wrong trajectory with regards to some local economic development. And there hadn't been any investment in Southern Vermont. And uh, coming from a background in doing software and always kind of trying to stay on the leading slash bleeding edge of where industry and technology is headed, I ran on a platform. It was, it was twofold in my mind it was one it was shrinking state government to return some autonomy back to uh, the regions and towns because i feel like you had a lot of capable people who were hamstrung because they didn't have the resources and plus taxes are pretty high in vermont and then the second part was through investment and innovation and so i was saying that we needed to create innovation centers around the state uh, fund them. You know, if the state wasn't going to willfully downsize itself and give money back to the communities to solve their own problems, then at least the state could say, we're going to make targeted investments in these struggling communities, throw millions of dollars into these innovation centers, knowing that for every failure, 
that's still an investment within the community, right? It's money that they get control over spending. And there was more elaborate details with regards to structure and how you do it. But ultimately it said, you know, Vermont's broken up into these economic development centers, give each one kind of a headquarter of innovation and try to attract companies there or at least get the locals to start spurring innovations, whether it be um, social innovations to solve community problems or um, business innovations to solve the economic problems. Because the, uh, you know, the opioid crisis hit pretty hard up here, which to me, you know, a lot of people go through the opioid crisis and I know there's all the medical and psychological aspects to it. But for me, it's, I don't know, it seemed pretty simple. It's like, here you go. You've got depressed communities where people don't have a lot of hope. Okay. What, mm-hmm. what, you know, what's an easy escape? If when you don't have a lot of resources or you don't feel like you, you know, and that's not making excuses for people who engage in that behavior, yeah. but it's just kind of painting it with a logical brush and saying, hey, here's the deal. I think if we start to improve the community, then chances are these things will improve as well. Yeah, I, I would say maybe having to get up the next day for work is going to have you take a pass on that Percocet or what have you. You know, I think it's idle idle behavior and and I think uh, the general lack of purpose that comes from lack of employment doesn't do anybody any good, no. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't know if what how Vermont's structured. Like, I know here in Massachusetts, for example, obviously most of the wealth and most of the economic activity centers around Boston. And as you get further west in the state, uh, it starts to dwindle. So you, you've got the universities, obviously, in, in Western Mass, you know, Amherst, and then kind of a smattering beyond there. But there's really not much economic activity uh, in the rest of the state. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't doesn't compare to yeah, it doesn't compare to Boston, right? And that yeah, yeah, exactly. And is that how Vermont is? Is Vermont? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's funny because I've met some small business owners in what I would call Southern Vermont, and um, you know, they want to start what they call the SOB um, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. business group, which is essentially south of Burlington, but it's tongue in cheek about how everything south of I would say Montpelier in general, uh, does not get the same attention. And that's pretty much a a northern third tier. And it's probably one sixth of Vermont, but it's probably, you know, one half of its population. So one sixth geographically, but one half of the population is, you know, from Montpelier up through Burlington, um, just because that's Vermont's one urban area. And then the rest of the state is just dotted with, you know, you have a main city probably in each county. And then, mm-hmm. you know, just smaller hamlets or villages or towns. And so is Springfield kind of the more common story then when you get outside of the Montpelier, Burlington area? Yeah, it's similar. It It never ceases to amaze me. And this is coming from someone who, you know, I went to school and ended up getting a, you know, essentially a degree in political science, lived in Europe, studied kind of the socialist systems over there, even though, you know, I call them pseudo-socialist just because there's a lot of capitalist effects there. But, um, you know, I think coming back here, it's just there was small towns where usually it's one industry that carries the economic load even if it's, you know, broken up into a couple 
you know, companies or divided between a couple of companies, usually you have a focus or some sort of specialization. So, you know, manufacturing up here, you know, it might've been food down South or some sort of agricultural processing, dairy, you name it, just those, those types of industries that failed or, you know, had some sort of pressure put on them um, due to scale uh, that, you know, it's been tough. And then Vermont has, it's kind of fascinating because I, I do the probably the cardinal sin of comparing Vermont to New Hampshire because growing up in Vermont, you know, New Hampshire was always the the upside down state and our nemesis and all that kind of stuff, you know. And <laughs> yeah. uh, but in you know being older and having run companies and having you know been been involved in things at a different level, uh, you start to look and you look at something like New Hampshire where it's like you know New Hampshire is a pretty beautiful state. It has, you know, amazing mountains mm-hmm. and lakes and all that, but also has a, a great economy and has, you know, more in yeah. a, a different track structure, we'll say. Whereas you get over in Vermont and Vermont primarily markets itself as being a beautiful state, right? So mm-hmm. because of that, I think the business side falls by the wayside, doesn't get nearly the attention in the leadership circles that it should, because everyone's banking on this natural beauty being the economic driver. When the reality is it's, it doesn't have enough juice nor structure around it to, you know, support the whole state. Yeah. And the one thing about New Hampshire and everybody from New Hampshire listening to this is going to (laughs) bristle at me, a resident of Massachusetts saying this. However, the one thing that New Hampshire has that I think is unique is they are they are very smart about how they structure their tax system. And the two the two biggest taxes in New Hampshire are property tax and the prepared meals tax. And so effectively what that does is they, so they don't have income. I don't think they have any income nope, tax. No income. They don't have sales tax. No sales. Um, but if you take a look at what, yeah, no, none. And it, but if you take a look at the property taxes, so uh, obviously property tax is based on the value of your home. As you get further South towards the bedroom communities in Southern New Hampshire that predominantly commute to Boston, you've got increased property values. The prepared meals tax, of course, who buys prepared meals, but, annoying people from Boston who come up to look at the leaves change. And so they've got a very, they, they definitely run lean. I, I, I think as a state, they do a great job of truly maintaining a civilian government. I mean, I want to say like, and, and don't quote me on this, I'll verify it after we record, but I, I want to say they spend like a week in session compared to, I mean, Massachusetts, it's a full-time job, yeah. the state legislature. So, so state legislature in New Hampshire, maybe like a few days and they go back to their district, uh, in Massachusetts, you're pretty much in Boston the majority of the time. So I guess, you know, one of the things you had mentioned was shrinking government. And I guess, can you tell me a little bit about like the, the impact that the current tax system has and the impact the size of government has who it benefits, who it hurts, and and where you saw room for improvement. Uh, I guess, you know, diving into it from my perspective, you know, one of the first things that shocked me was that, okay, Vermont has you know, a little over 600,000 people, right? Mm-hmm. It has a $6 billion state budget. And I just, you just, 
mm-hmm. do simple division and you start realizing you're like, that's a chunk of change. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. and, and it just, there was a part of me that was like, wait a minute, 600,000 people. And you've got a $6 billion budget. Like where, wait a minute, how, how do you justify that? When, you know, and this isn't just me, like small government for small government's sake or, you know, borrowing the, a proverbial Republican line. Um, it was more looking at it and saying, if you have a budget that is, you know, twice the size of New Hampshire, I think, or equivalent to New Hampshire, but you have half the gross product, yeah. I was like, then something's failing. Like something is fundamentally wrong that you need to reassess with regards to how those dollars are being spent. It's, you know, I, I come from the startup software world where everything is um, pretty transparent because it's like either you're, you're succeeding or you're failing. It's, (laughs) it's cut and dry. And so when you're looking at your allocations at some point, you know, before you pivot or before you change things, and we all know government is not meant to be that dynamic, uh, for other reasons, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like, how come there aren't more people fundamentally questioning, you know, the fact that, you know, they're paying so much money on one, their home, right? The one, the most significant asset most individuals still have, especially in New England, it's like, it's your home and that's where the majority of your tax valuation is derived, which isn't necessarily fair. Two, you have a small bubble of economic stability in the state and the rest of the state is suffering. So what's going on there? And then uh, three, you just get into the, like I said, the general aspects of, okay, let's look at how many programs this the state has. Like for 600,000 people, like that's a, that's a, a small city in most states, right? And and that's for your whole yeah. state. Like how come there's to me it just there was inherent question about there's gotta be a way to extract efficiencies. And then it gets into some of my basic theories about humans in general, which is, you know, you're gonna get better solutions closer to the problem than you are at a at a mm-hmm. distance. And I just fundamentally believe in that yeah. the older I get. It's like if you empower people to take care of themselves or to help others around them at a more micro scale, then you're going to get better results in stronger communities. Yeah, I'd agree there. I'd agree there. And, you know, it's funny. So I'm listening to you or I'm listening to your, your platform here and, and listening to some of your philosophies and it's, it, it does sound, you know, very Republican. So, you know, small government, I wouldn't say you haven't said low taxes, but let's say examining where our taxes are going. And especially now, something interesting that I think has come onto the Republican platform in, in the Trump era is this focus on trade or this focus on the communities that have basically been gutted by changes in manufacturing. But you decided to go non-traditional. And so what was why didn't you maybe just go Republican or or ally yourself with either major party? Uh, Well, I think that you touched on some of what the answer is, (laughs) which is I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like the Republican party was a good representation of the diversity of the country at this point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had the ability to live overseas and live around the country, like, you know, amazing privilege to be able to do that. And I just, 
when it comes to just social issues, I'm pretty liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, I don't care what you do, who you are, how you want to define yourself. Great. That to me is like inherent in the whole freedom equation and the right to pursue happiness and do what you want. But but at the same time, I I believe in people learning to become more independent. Mm-hmm. And I look at that as an empowerment type model as opposed to, hey, here I am up on high, right? All you 600,000 people, I know better than you. So I'm going to tell you how to solve your problems when I'm like, I have ideas, but I am in no way going to put myself above other people when it comes to their experience. You know, it's funny because you you were talking about your experiences in Europe too. And I, I had some experience doing business over in Europe for, for a few years. And so I got to know the the different cultures there and and the way they go about doing things. And 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 I I really looked at their their model, which is let's just call it high tax and heavy government involvement. And in some ways I really admired it. So uh, a great example is when Sarah and I were talking about how are we going to put our kids through college? And I have Irish citizenship, so I can move over there and work. And if I were to go over there, uh, my kids would pay maybe about five grand a year for college and a good college. And when you compare that to the bill we tote here in in the U.S. and and then of course their their healthcare model, which isn't perfect, but uh, if you look at Certain countries, you, in, in, again, depending on which country you're in, you can get some very high quality healthcare uh, for 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 nothing out of pocket. And so, and so, I looked at that, and in a lot of respects, I admired it. The one problem I had with it was that government, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, government is not designed to be dismantled. So kind of once you build a bureaucracy, it's there. And if let's say, for example, we were to publicly fund college education, well, now college becomes a given, but its costs basically become buried in the government. So we're still paying for it. it and, and the costs are still growing. We're not doing anything to cover it. It's just buried in the tax base. And it becomes a lot more difficult to look at a failing model and say, maybe we ought to do it differently. So uh, just as another example, if we take a look at like Medicare or or, or Social Security, right? I mean, these models are effectively failing. Like they don't have enough money to fund them. They are failing models. But because we've created this and because people are expecting it and because nobody really sees it, we're bound to save it. And I feel like in some ways government can paint us into a corner. How do you feel about that statement? Does that match what you saw over there or or did you come out with a different perspective? Yeah, I think what I noticed over there, it's it, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's culturally different than than our kind of founding. So over there, I think I found in equal or even greater amount of people who were dissatisfied with their government in general or who distrusted it, like thought that most politicians mm-hmm. were sleazy and 
um, just, you know, a, a lack of faith and trust. But simultaneously, because of those things you mentioned, they have great benefits, right? So there's, they're pacified. There's not that urge to fight again, bite the hand that feeds you, right? It's like, well, you know, but I have a pretty good lifestyle. And a lot of Europeans do, right? They have, they have good services. They're compassionate people. They're smart people. If you're smart, you can still get ahead. And, you know, I guess there's, there's, and this is you know, my perception, but I think it bears out statistically, even though I haven't studied all that recently, uh, is that, you know, there's probably less suffering over there when it comes down to it. So when you have less suffering, mm-hmm. you know, the fight is yeah. different. Um, uh, whereas in the U S right now, you know, you're seeing to me ungodly amounts of suffering and you start to question like why even at the U S level, cause you start looking at, like I said, I was taking the microcosm of Vermont, um, and even some of the local governments where you're like, okay, you have all this money, but it's not being allocated properly. And I think there are ways you can do it through either market models or through kind of, you know, taking off the top heavy aspects of it and kind of realigning your priorities. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a, and I'm not saying it's a governmental redistribution of wealth type thing, which freaks everyone out, but it is, it's a redistribution of wealth, you know, because at some point, um, do we all think that, you know, 1% deserves to have 98% of what's produced? That, that to me is not natural. Right. There's no, I mean, we can make arguments that whoever the one percenters, they're smart people. They're smart. They've done something. And anyone who's been in business or run their own business or, you know, hard work was involved. So it's kind of, you know, you can't really throw, throw darts at them and just say, oh, they're sitting on their butts and just collecting a big check type thing. No, these are people who work hard, are highly motivated, highly inspired. But, <laughs> you know, does that equate to the, the percentage they have versus, you know, what's happening in the rest of the country? Eh, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have zero problem with fantastic wealth. I have zero problem with the idea that somebody like Jeff Bezos can quit his job, quit a fairly cushy job, and go out there and obsessively pursue this dream and through a combination of, of hard work, of ability – but let's also face it, timing and circumstance is able to create this enormous company that disrupts entire businesses or entire industries. But I'd, ag- I'd also agree with you that if you are Jeff Bezos and you've made all this money, that you do owe something to the society that allowed you to exist, You know, the society that created that safety and that infrastructure for you to create this fantastic uh, this fantastic business, and that some of that payment should go to, for lack of a better word, the losers in that equation, you know, and kind of bringing those people up. Because I think as an economy, one of the things that we have going for us is just the dynamism, the fact that we're not, if you, if you do look at other countries, you have situations where they're wedded to specific types of industries or in Japan, you know, one of the things that's aggravated their recession is the fact that they refuse to put people out of business. Whereas here, it's, it is the fact that we allow industries to fail that ultimately creates dynamism. But I do think we owe something to, to the folks who, who maybe didn't end up the winners in that equation. It's, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, part of this depressed culture that 
uh, for lack of a better word, because mm -hmm. of what people are choosing to engage in with regards to all the issues out there, mm -hmm. you know, and the fact that we don't pay enough attention to mental health and consider that legitimate drives me crazy too. And talking mm -hmm. on the aggregate, right? Uh, but I just, I think we underestimate the strength of the individual. Mm-hmm. And that gets into that point of I, I begrudge no one their success um, who's worked hard, done something, you know, ingenious. But at some point you get to a certain scale where the proverbial scales are tipped in your favor because of your scale. Right. And it's not that eh, it's similar to the too big to fail argument with banks where I think some could have been allowed to fail more harshly and sure it would have stunk for a while, but might have been better for us as a society on some levels but um mm -hmm. you know at some point you have to say that yeah this this imbalance is is detrimental and if you don't proactively try to address it then it will get addressed because everything ebbs and flows like you need to find that natural balance and we're at that point now which is kind of it's an interesting dynamic where there's enough wealth for a lot of people to be placated but there's kind of a, you know, that next generation coming through a rising tide that's saying, yeah, the way our country's structured right now is not adequate. It's not equitable. It's not what I think we all aspire to, which is give everyone a fair chance, you know, in our competitive nature of independence, at least say the playing field is a bit more level. Yeah. So now where, where did you study in Europe? Uh, so I studied in Belgium twice. So once I was in Southern Belgium uh, in a city called Liège, um, which similarly was a city that was a manufacturing town that had issues like the U.S. did. So that was fascinating. And then I got to uh, study in Brussels prior to the Euro being created. So it was kind of fascinating because I got to study with all these yeah. European leaders who were setting the standards for what was going to be the rules of accession to the euro from all the native currencies. Okay. Interesting. Obviously you've got, you've gotten some familiarity with how they do things over there. What would you say? And again, we'll speak about America in broad terms. I'll even maybe say Vermont if it's easier for you, but you know, what would you say you'd keep the same about America and, and what might you borrow from Europe? Or what do you think they're doing right? Uh, so I think that freedom, like just that whole bootstrap mentality in the U.S. is, mm -hmm. is a good thing. It, it's a certain durability and character of no matter what the odds, we'll still do it. Because I feel like that was the tipping point in the world at one point. Like it's historically significant, mm -hmm. that, that cultural element of saying that, you know what, the individual, there's some grit, there's some durability there. Like the, don't just get things handed to you. Like there should be an effort because to your point earlier where you said, you know what, you don't have, maybe you get these great things in Europe, but you don't necessarily have the transparency about where that money's coming from. So, you know, I like to say that nothing's free. Um, so there needs to be an adequate effort for the return somewhere. So I would consider that to be distinctly an American thing that we're really tied into that. Mm -hmm. And it plays into our competition and ideally our collaboration. 
the the one thing or probably two things that I think I would borrow from Europe, it's the health and education, because I think those are the two items that can level the playing field. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying a state run healthcare or a state run education. I think they can be players in a competitive market. So I look at the U.S. and the difference between the U.S. on paper and Europe, you know, getting out of cost of providing healthcare being ridiculously expensive in the U.S. and bureaucratic, uh, as opposed to Europe, you know, maybe doesn't have all the services, but better general quality healthcare. And probably same could be said about Canada. Mm-hmm. I would say make healthcare nationally competitive. Right now, healthcare is restricted by each state's regulations. So that's more bureaucracy if you're trying to give something that should be a national benefit. I mean, we have, you know, interstate commerce rules for almost everything else except for healthcare. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's somewhere where the federal government should say, here's the deal. States, you cannot undermine access to healthcare through your own administrative procedures. So essentially it says, hey, Blue Cross, uh, you know, Aetna, whoever out there, you can run national plans that work in any state and can be, you know, you, you have coverage. So that I think is interesting. I think it's an interesting market opportunity because the amount of innovation that would generate from a disruptive aspect is just mind blowing. But the second part would be getting into the education aspect too, and not vouchers or anything like that. But I kind of like the ability to say that each student and family coming up and Vermont actually does a pretty good job of this should have the ability to go where their talents lie, you know? So if you have a kid who's in an area Mm -hmm. where, you know, they maybe have some artistic gifts, um, but their school doesn't adequately meet it. Like what's worse than having a kid in their formative years spend six or seven years stuck because of economic reasons and not able to, you know, flesh out their, their gifts or, or, or at least, kind of like the startup world it's like kill it fast (laughs) you know if an idea go try it and if you hit a wall and realize you don't have the grit to keep going then okay great well then you can you can change because that's the beauty of a dynamic economy a dynamic lifestyle right you're you're not stuck you shouldn't be stuck so that part where say here's the deal yeah if you if your local schools can't meet your need, then you should be able to go somewhere else and you should be able to take the money that's allocated for you somewhere else. And so that's kind of vouchery, yeah, but I, it's kind of how Vermont deals with things. I mean, there are limits and the reality is, is everyone, you know, from the politicization of everything, everyone's uh, gets up in arms. Oh, you know, that's like vouchers or that's this. It's like, no, let's dial it back and look statistically at what percentage of people are impacted by that. Most people are going to stay in their local schools <laughs> and they're going to do that because it's a good fit. And we have great public education system if it gets the right support. A lot of great teachers out there, but there's a percentage of kids that's a smaller percentage that probably don't fit that mainstream model well then let them go somewhere else and do something else i i was this is a couple years back i was talking to this mit professor his name totally escapes me but he was obviously a brilliant guy the guy teaches at mit so his job is being smarter than the smartest effectively and 
we were talking about the about the education system and education reform and he said he talked to one of the premier experts in education reform and he asked him he said what's the number one obstacle to reforming education in the u.s and the guy's response was parents and and he said because parents are trained to have their kids on a college track yeah and they will always look at education as a as a mechanism to get their kid into college and because now it's gotten to the point where it's effectively essential or maybe getting less so but it's effectively essential if you're going to go and look for a job in this economy and if you're going to be up if you're going to be mobile and versatile and the other thing he said is that right now companies are demanding college degrees because they don't have to pay anything for it. It doesn't cost them anything to say, I want somebody with a bachelor's or master's or equivalent or what have you. And so as a result, what you have is you have these parents who are demanding their kid get put on a college track. You have a job market that is demanding a college diploma because it doesn't cost them anything. And so you've got this recipe for a, a, a sort of dysfunctional or let's say less nimble educational system. And I, I think getting to your point, it, and I do think that the trends are moving in this direction, that if we start to shift our educational system away from this this cookie cutter to something that really takes in the unique skills of uh, every individual, we're going to end up with a much better prepared you know, workforce. And is that kind of the vision? Yeah. 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 It's similar because I, I think it's what's old is new again um, with regards to internships and yeah. trades. Like I, I think about, you know, you look at a basic equation of let's just ballpark a four year college education, you know, at a school is 160 to 200,000, right? We'll say all in. And we won't even capture that as an opportunity. Well, we'll look at it as an opportunity cost too, because say I come right out of you know high school and I um, have some vocational training. Maybe I'm a journey person, plumber. I'll say instead of journeyman, um, but uh, you know, or electrician. Yeah. And okay, maybe I'm making fifty to seventy a year, or within five years. In theory, if I'm decent, I could be owning my own company and making close to six figures, probably, even in a rural area. Yeah, because there's such a dearth of of skilled labor. And so you look at that and you start saying, okay, so I'm let's take it my first ten years of postgraduate high school graduate, and you know, so I'm in the trades. I've probably already pulled in close to a half million dollars, right? Which you know, mm-hmm. that's a good chunk of money, especially if we educate people better on investing and how to manage money, which is we do a poor job of. But the second part of that figure is, okay, I'm the high school student that comes out with the 160 to 200K of debt, which is compounding, right, after that. And uh, and then I come out with a job of 40 to 50K. Well, let's be realistic. In those 10 years, even though I make my 500,000, I probably have only paid off 50 or 60 of my debt. 
because they're on 20 to 30 year terms. And that's mm-hmm. something I got more involved with too, is just how crazy the um, federal loans program is of making money too easy to get because people, mm-hmm. to your point, you've got the cultural side of you need a college diploma because if not, you don't qualify for anything. But then you have the other flip side, the economic side, which is, okay, this money is too easy. It's too easy to get. Like you don't get turned down. Like there's no condition of return mm-hmm. <laughs> other than guess what? Um, you're young and foolish and don't have enough economic knowledge or knowledge about yourself to have any clue about what those numbers mean and what the actual burden is to repay them. And so it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's fascinating that we set people up for failure that way. And, and that it's when it comes down to it, and this isn't conspiracy theory, it's just, it is what it is. It's our government has enabled that because of decisions that were, you know, I'll give the perspective of probably done in good faith of thinking, you know, the more people get to college, higher educated populace, you know, better education usually has better outcomes for success in life and income. And you can read all those statistics. But I think when you start to step back and like I said, what's old is new again and ask people like, well, what do you want out of life? Like what makes you happy or what motivates you? And ultimately, as we're even mentioning earlier, like what would get you out of bed in the morning to go do something productive as opposed to destructive? Okay. When you start looking at things and framing it that way and say, we've equipped you with healthcare or at least competitive healthcare. So you can get reasonable coverage somehow, somewhere we've equipped you with a little bit of help on your education, but not so much that it's not a decision that needs to be put into an economic model or or a desires model where you really want it <laughs> and then and then after that you say guess what also we've equipped you with the reality of economics and just how things work with regards to money and investing and i think that as well would help to start leveling the playing field in a a market type equation so that one percent would probably change if people got smarter about their money Mm -hmm. um, and how they spent it and you know and and debt wasn't so easy to process in the u.s i love it from a a cash liquidity perspective and i think if you're an entrepreneur or you're someone who likes to invest and take risks it's great but for those people that take it without understanding the risk then it's deadly you know (laughs) so yeah so anyway in general, I think, you know, getting back to the initial question, healthcare and education in some way need to be reformed in our country and not just in little bits and pieces or, hey, it needs to be a competitive marketplace because that's always what's brought about the best solutions, I think, in the U.S. And it needs to be where government can compete against industry. Yeah. Well, and as a PSA for all the parents out there listening, if you're ever struggling trying to figure out what career direction to point your kid into, try getting an electrician to return your call and you'll figure out pretty quick yeah. one one good spot to send them. Uh, electrician, plumber, carpenter, right? Yeah, there you go. 100%, 100%. So yeah, like the, it, it's funny. I never really thought of it this way, but the environment you describe, it's almost like we're training kids to become debtors in a way. I think we totally are. I mean, I feel like I was trained that way. I mean, I went into college, I went overseas, I financed a lot of it because I didn't come from, I mean, my family up front was like, 
you know, we're, there was no expectation on my end that they were paying for school. Yeah. You know, that was, I knew early on, like, Hey kid, you're, you need to go out and earn it. And I did, but luckily I also was curious enough to make some investments and bets on like, I bought my first house when I was 19 Mm-hmm. And that was because I found out about FHA loans and first-time buyers because I was trying to establish citizenship in Colorado so I could get in-state resident rates um, so I could be a resident. And I convinced my parents at the time, it seemed like a ton of money, but I think it was three grand was the down payment. My father said, I'll give you half. My parents did that. They did, uh, they'll probably curse me if they listen to this, but mm-hmm. you know, they didn't do the best job when we we're young about teaching us about the economics aspect, but they always made us earn things. Yeah. So it was always like, yeah, we'll help you, but you have to earn it. You got to work for it. Like I went on outward bound, uh, their leadership course for a semester, you know, out in the middle of nowhere for a semester, still to date, one of the more formative experiences of my life. But the deal once again was, Hey, this is a chunk of change you're going to have to hustle to make up half of it. Yeah. I just think to your point with parents, it's like one teacher, teach your kids some responsibility and durability, uh, teach them about economics, you know, be honest with them. And frankly, find out what's in their best interest, right? Is it in their best? And if you don't know, then ask someone, ask for help, find help. We're very bad at that in the U S I think because of the way our country set yeah. up is just asking for help is saying, Hey, I have a weakness because weaknesses tend to be shamed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I have a weakness here. Can you, can you help me? I need a resource. I think as a country or as a culture, we're unique in our ability to almost glorify failure in a way. If you fail, you're trying, but if you ask for help, that's an entirely different story. I think in our culture, where I, I think in some cases in Europe, it's it's kind of the opposite. I think the consequences of failure are a bit higher there or a bit more personal. Whereas help is is sort of, you know, like you said, compassion is, is a bit more of a given. So it's it's funny, like, obviously, and I think you're like most people where your philosophy, you don't really fit into a party platform per se. So kind of getting back to the run for governor then, how did you package all that? Or did you have to? Did you have to package all that into a platform people could get? Or because of the size of Vermont, were you really able to communicate that on a more personal, intimate level? Well, so a couple things. I I came into the race what late, I would say. Okay. Because it was kind of one of those, I I came to one of those, uh, you know, tipping points where my wife and I were like, okay, what are we doing in here or doing up here? (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's really difficult state to live in the economy. We're surrounded by in Southern Vermont. It's tough. It's like not somewhere where my wife without more significant effort than an urban area would have an easy time finding work, let alone myself, uh, other than I tend to either try to create companies or opportunities and just got to the point where it was like, are we leaving? And and I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to leave. I'd rather be a part of the change. You know, I see it more as an opportunity. And so I threw my hat in the ring. We went late. We just barely on the last day before signatures were supposed to be handed in, uh-huh. got them in, hit the number and, um, and got approved. And then it was off to the races. But the one thing 
that I think was an underlying theme for me was authenticity. And it was, you know, I'm not going to say things just because it's what people want to hear. I want to have engaged discussions about what people see the issues are and try to dive into what the actual solutions are, whether a person agrees with me or not. And another thing I tried to do, um, which was probably the only kind of kitschy thing, but I did a lot of social media. Uh, Mm -hmm. I tried to do videos almost every day, and I tried to visit all 251 towns in Vermont. Okay. uh, Which became pretty daunting because I wanted to say that I at least bent every single town. So if a Vermonter came up and talked to me, I could say, you know what? I know something about your town so I can connect to you on a human level or an experiential level. I probably made it to around 200 some odd towns. Okay. I was just going to say like for the people listening who don't know Vermont, Vermont is I think two major highways and then a bunch of back roads, right? So it's like a bunch of, yeah. yeah. So it's not an easy state to get around in. Oh, not at all. And that was, I won't say I underestimated that part of the task, but I think once I had that as part of my goal setting, then as we started to get some visibility, then the other things kind of hit you in a flood, which is requests for radio and requests for debates and requests to be interviewed for papers. And, and you don't realize how much time that, or I didn't realize how much time that would take up at the time. And so it ended up kind of diverting the schedule and making it, and we, we didn't have a staff. It was just myself and my wife and my kids. Okay. And then some friends that helped out occasionally, like we were doing grassroots all the way. And it was, it was just, it was awesome. And I felt like also running as an independent, Mm -hmm. it allowed me to have those conversations with people that if I came with a label, because I'm not really, like I said, I'm not big on labels, just be people. Yeah. That if I didn't come with a label, then people, one, would express themselves more freely or two, they'd be a little more hesitant and they'd ask me questions to pull my beliefs out of me. And then when they do that, they become more trusting because they'd realize, well, you really don't fit into a box. And I'd be like, yeah, because I'm I'm a human being who has unique experiences. And based on what I'm seeing, I think we can approach some of these problems in a different way. Yeah. And I respect you. Hopefully you can respect me, whether we agree on the same things or not. And I feel like that comes from my Massachusetts blood a little bit of the ghost of Tip O'Neill and (laughs) Kennedy's and trying to cross the lines and, you know, let's sit at a bar and hash this out type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned, so you got invited to debates, like, tell me a little bit about that. It's, it's a visceral reaction when I hear, yeah, with that question, because what I found out, which was the ugly underbelly uh-huh. is that even though I had qualified like everyone else to be on the ballot and there were as far as you know falling under the independent umbrella even though people were affiliated with uh, smaller size parties mm-hmm. you know there was another eight or nine candidates in addition to the main parties the Democratic and Republican is that if you weren't Democrat or Republican because so much money had infiltrated Vermont, I, and I say infiltrate because it was outside funds mm-hmm. that we got essentially nixed out of most of the debates. Uh, a lot of the media outlets wouldn't cover us. They wouldn't give us airtime, uh, even if we requested it. 
we got standard airtime from, um, and this was where it was really bad, is that, you know, the public broadcasting networks uh-huh. in Vermont, and Vermont's a pretty independent, you know, fiery state that way. Yeah. Even they cut us out of the debates. They wouldn't let us be in the debates. They only had the two, what I will call traditional party candidates. And so I admit that was a little disappointing to me because the couple conversations I was able to engage in and debates or discussions with what we'll call the traditional party candidates, we got along well. Uh, I think they realized, at least selfishly from my perspective, they're like, okay, this is, isn't someone who's coming out of left field other than their name recognition. You know, they had never heard of me, but they're like, wow, he's well-spoken. He actually has some good ideas and, you know, great. But at the same time, they're like, well, we got to stick to our, our party lines because that's where our checks are coming from. And, you know, and I was like, Vermont of all places, it was kind of that childish hope in me that Vermont still had a bit more of its independence and kind of, I won't say childish, but I'll just say purity to it. And that kind of got wiped out (laughs) during the campaign that was like, you know what? Yeah, people are playing to win up here and it's just, it's the same party politics that go on everywhere. Mm -hmm. But I did come out of the campaign with the belief that if I had more runway as an independent and had been more publicly visible, I could have won. Yeah. I genuinely think that because, you know, we came in third, as I say, but I was the most unknown candidate who, you know, got the most votes. So. Got it. Yeah. So I, I, I want to dive into this a little more. I think this is fascinating, but, but, but the other thing I want to get before we get in there you know, you talked a little bit about being boxed out of airtime and not really getting the same opportunities. So aren't news networks required to do f- free and equal time? So don't, aren't you, if they, for example, feature the Republican candidate, aren't they required to give you? Uh, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what we like to think. And I think if I had decided to, but I decided this isn't what I, the game I wanted to play, like we could have sued, we could, we would have had a valid lawsuit and could have really stirred things up through shock value. But I feel like, you know what, I understand that game too. And it just, that wasn't part of kind of what the point was I was trying to make. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't in this to win for me. I was in it to bring new ideas to the conversation and hopefully return us to, you know, a, a more collaborative discussion where the value isn't by talking points. It's by, you know, finding, uh, solutions to the actual problems, irrespective of party. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very much like like the deck was stacked in a way. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, if I had been, I, I think about it, and you know, this is part of, I guess, self confidence and trying not to lean into ego. But you know, I I felt like if I had had a chance early on to be on stage with the traditional party candidates, I think it would have changed the whole election because i think that a lot of my ideas could go toe to toe with kind of the traditional party ideas based on just research and experience and well and you had a case too where there are two people who are doing this full time they're financed so they've got yep. big party funds and millions of dollars yep and, and they've got the connections with the media and so and and of course, if the media isn't abiding by its uh, and the news stations aren't abiding by their uh, legally bound duty to provide free and equal time, and you don't have the money to sue them, then 
that's kind of that. Well, it wasn't even it wasn't even money. I would say because yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I know how to sue. Um, okay, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, like I know that game and I know how to play it and could have figured it out. But like I said, I just want. Yeah to be clear on that point, like that was not my point. It wasn't, I guess part of what I said on the campaign trail is I'm not trying to win at all costs. I'm trying to win because there is a cost and the cost to kind of not participating far outweighs (laughs) all the other ones. Yeah. So that's, you know, getting into the democratic aspect of it or, or we'll say political part of it is, yeah, it was kind of disappointing because that was, you realize once again, fundamentally the system is skewed mm-hmm. and it's skewed to a specific interest group as opposed to saying anyone who's met the threshold deserves to be able to participate mm-hmm. and participate at a level that has a bit of equity to it. I mean, don't get me wrong. If we went out there and we you know, started spewing ideas and we were getting crushed in the poll numbers, but had at least been given a chance and equal standing to present our ideas and, and kind of got naturally moved out of the equation. Great. Okay. That, that I can swallow and say, you know what? Hey, I like to win, but I also know how to lose. So the, the flip side of that is it was only towards the end that we started to gain a little attention because we're just literally, I was driving around the state talking to people and starting to get a little exposure from, you know, newspaper interviews and a little stuff on the radio and some stuff on TV. I think people are like, wait a minute, there, there might be another credible candidate out there. But mm-hmm. yeah, to my earlier point, I think it became just a matter of timing and lack of familiarity um, with people. But the message still resonated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I, I, you know, aside from obviously being sort of boxed out of the media, boxed out of the debates, were there other obstacles thrown in your way? I, I think there were self-imposed obstacles. Uh, okay. So I didn't. It's interesting because I've had uh, the opportunity to talk to friends who have been involved politically and they've told me, hey, you know what? We used to just take any money. We'd say that was our way of leveling the playing field. We'll take money from everyone, but we won't guarantee you that your money buys influence. And Mm -hmm. that still kind of struck me as a little perverse. I could see it being the best case scenario in a broken scenario. Yeah. But for me, I said, you know what? I'm only going to do grassroots and take small amounts of money. Yeah. And I'm not going to take any corporate you know i had people who were like yeah we'll write you checks and and i just was like nah thank you i appreciate it and i appreciate the support but i'm i'm really trying to go out there and say that dare i say it's almost like taking a playbook out of um either obama or bernie so that's kind of the irony right is a lot of my ideas are leaning on the on probably the republican economic side of solving problems um and the smaller government side but uh on the flip side, I, I do appreciate the grassroots aspect of what's happened in the Democratic Party to you know really say, let's raise small amounts and at least give the perception um, that we're not in bed with big business. But uh, yeah, for me, I really just wanted to, independent to me meant that I had to have another level of credibility with regards to running a very lean campaign and not just spending on things. Um, just because, you know, you had the money and it was just the all out, just plaster the airwaves. Um, once again, that would have been counterintuitive to my, my theme of being authentic. 
Yeah. And so do you think, so the, the governor now, where is, where is he getting his money? Who's, who's interested in him getting elected? Um, I think it's, I mean, it's Republican party on a national level. I actually don't have any real issues with the current governor. Okay. I think, you know, I got to meet him. I can't say I know him that well, but I think he's, uh, he genuinely is a pretty good guy. Came from Vermont, um, worked his rear off, um, building a business and, you know, then got elected. But I think the irony is, is the democratic party in Vermont right now is making his job very easy, uh, because we've got an overwhelming, uh, a super majority of Democrats in, um, the Vermont, uh, state house. And, they managed to accomplish absolutely nothing this last part of the term. Like mm-hmm. this last session, they shot themselves in the foot on almost everything, which, you know, good to be the governor. Cause he's the luckiest guy alive. He's like, I didn't even have anything come across my desk that was remotely controversial or something. I would you know, stand up, stand against yeah. because they could never pass anything. They couldn't agree amongst themselves. It's like, you know, the typical, dare I say, the unfortunately typical uh, fate of Democrats now is too many smart people in a room and none of them, yeah. you know, you know, too many, either too many leaders or just too, too many uh, opinions. Um, they just can't seem to come together with good enough as opposed to, you know, it's got to be perfect. Yeah. The circular firing squad. Exactly. So uh, anyway, I think, I think there's, you know, state money and there's local money because he is a Vermonter native. And, Mm -hmm. and I think at one point he related more closely to Vermonters Mm -hmm. now, you know, might be a little more distanced, Uh, but unfortunately he, he plays the game well. Yeah. And his, his group plays the game well and they play to win. So they do what they need to, to win, which, you know, bravo to them. It's the way the system's set up. They're, they're using it well, but I just, to me, just government in general, whether it be Vermont or in different areas, I feel like outside of the local, there's just that lack of authenticity that it feels like to some extent you're, you're playing off a song sheet as opposed to, you know, actually trying to get out there and engage people. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you, 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 part of your, the results or or part of the results you saw can be due to lack of runway and the next election is 2024, right? So Uh, 2020 in Vermont, it's every two years for governor. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? So you think you'll do it again? I will do it again. But I have taken on another project that kind of has me putting my money where my mouth is. Okay. So I, I probably won't run in the next election. I might, I might okay. wait because I think the lessons learned, as eager as I am from a personal perspective to really make change, I think I can be probably more effective in the short term working on some local projects yeah uh over kind of the next cycle hopefully be able to prove out some of the things i'm talking about um Mm -hmm. through these programs i get to work on and and then come back with a a better vermont track record Mm -hmm. Uh, outside of just frustration and independent and a different perspective i can come back with a little stronger resume and say hey here are things i've worked on recently in Vermont that really helped to affect change. 
and that are directly related to a lot of what my platform was. It's just taking it to that regional and local level and implementing some programs that uh, I hope will bear fruit within a couple of years and then kind of help be a more natural springboard to be like, yeah, I'd like to see these things apply to a state level. And I think the best place I could do that would be, you know, either running for governor or frankly, who knows with, you know, we've got a pretty old congressional delegation in Vermont. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. Uh, If they ever listen, it's like, if anyone hears this, uh, I'll just say, well, well, we have a, um, to, to reword we we have a, exactly, I was going to go, we have a very seasoned (laughs) and, uh, you know, skilled and experienced group that uh, I think at some point might want to uh, do something else. Use their skills elsewhere. Exactly. So, or just retire, you know, if, and if they choose to do that and those types of openings occurred, then that would be a curiosity as well, because as much as, I like to do personal projects on the local level, but I, I'm mm-hmm. not as interested in being an elected local official. Yeah, um, I'm more interested in doing it at either a state or, or national level. And honestly, because of my time overseas and some of my previous studies, I, I'd love to get involved in international affairs you know, down the line. But I feel like that's stuff for when my kids are out of college and I have grandkids yep. and I got more time to kill and just, you know, try yeah. to be the old wise dude. So, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just did the math and you have four years to talk with 600,000 people. So if you do, <laughs> if you talk with 411 people a day, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll more than hit your deadline. And, uh, you know, when you do decide to run, if, if you get there, you have my full support and I'm happy to be your, your out-of-state backer that people can use to malign you when you do start to rise in the polls. Uh, <laughs> right on. I appreciate that. <laughs> Especially being from Massachusetts, I'll just I'll, I'll just take you right down. That they it won't take long for uh, yeah. it won't take long for them to make me the the out-of-state boogeyman. But yeah, you know, I, I you know this is just super interesting. Uh, you can probably tell I love talking politics and political philosophy and and, and but 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 the journey that you described was really interesting, much different than what I expected. So again, you know, just thank you for, for, for taking the time to speak. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. And that was Trevor Barlow, candidate for governor of Vermont 2018. Now Trevor's blend of fiscal conservatism and social liberalism sounds like a lot of the people I know. And as you heard, his platform is not, that outside the norm but even in a state like vermont he was still shut out of the discussion as are many third-party candidates in this country and you know some of you might say or be thinking that third-party candidates just don't have the support and you can't give everyone a voice but think of this right now cnn has two sets of televised debates to figure out which one out of 20 people will be the Democratic nominee for president. The Democratic nominee. And the only benchmark is that they have at least 1% of support in the polls. So, someone with 1% of support from one-third of the electorate can get nationalized TV coverage, but third parties are somehow too fringe. Doesn't hold a ton of water. Now, next week, I'll have Mark Horger, 
senior lecturer at the Ohio State University to talk about what history tells us about our two-party duopoly and what it tells us about the state of affairs today. Until the next, you've all been great. This is Dan Sally signing off.